Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to The Bar. The Bar on Healthcare is a podcast produced by the Aon Health Solutions Group, focusing on developments in federal and state health and welfare law and their impact on employer group health plans. I'm J.D. Pirro of the Legal Consulting Group. And hello, everyone. I'm Carrie Willis, also with the Legal Consulting Group. If you've been listening to The Bar, we're happy to have you. If not, please feel free to make us part of your regular feed. Just search for The Bar on Healthcare on any of the streaming services where you normally get your podcasts. Then subscribe, tell your healthcare-inclined friends, and please leave us a kind review. And JD, The Bar is open. Indeed we are. Pull up a stool, grab your favorite spot, and when you do, Be sure the light is good where you're sitting because you are going to need it. The Departments of Labor, Treasury, and HHS have released their summer bestsellers, their own versions of the movie blockbusters. No, they're not chasing the dial of destiny. They're not opening up the door to Barbie land. They are releasing new rules and regulations. So if you haven't decided what to bring along to the beach, here are some suggestions from our favorite regulatory agencies. Carrie? So the first set of proposed regulations that we received by the agencies a couple of weeks ago address the treatment of short-term limited duration insurance or STLDI policies. We also got proposed regulations dealing with hospital indemnity or fixed indemnity insurance policies in both the group and the individual market. And those proposed regulations also address the income tax treatment of those fixed benefit payments that are received received under employer-provided fixed indemnity policies. And the change in the short-term limited duration insurance policies, STLDI just sounds like it's way too long an acronym. An acronym should like be three letters, four at the most. STLDI just doesn't work. Anyway, the short-term limited duration insurance policies, they are the continuation of a healthcare policy dispute, actually, that began with the passage of the ACA. We'll get to that in a moment. But these health insurance policies are primarily to fill a temporary coverage gap whenever an individual changes healthcare plans. And the policy question has always been, one, how long should these policies last? And two, what kind of benefits should they provide? Or to put it in shorthand, how temporary is temporary? Exactly. And we do get existential here at the bar. You know, hey, after, you know, a couple of rounds, talk about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. But these types of policies, short-term limited duration insurance, they are not subject to group health mandates. They do not provide comprehensive coverage. The advantage is they're cheap. And for people who are in good health, that might be all the coverage they need or all the coverage they want. Maybe it might be all the coverage they want, but is it the coverage they need? You see, opponents point out that many people who buy the coverage aren't aware of these limits. And these people could end up getting stuck with huge medical bills if they fall sick or get injured. And the Obama administration first, and now the Biden administration, has labeled this kind of short-term minimalist coverage. Kerry, what's the term they use? Junk insurance. So what are they going to do about it? Go ahead, Kerry. So, well, under the current regulations that were passed during the Trump administration, the maximum coverage term of short-term limited duration insurance policies is 36 months. These new proposed regs, and and again, these are proposed, they are not yet final, they would reduce the maximum coverage length to three months. So from 36 months to three months. And then the agencies also proposed to impose a enhanced notice requirement to make sure that consumers understand 
that these STLDI policies are not comprehensive coverage. They do not have all the consumer protections of the Affordable Care Act and to make sure that consumers understand that these policies are, in fact, not comprehensive health insurance coverage. And in fairness to, although we've talked about this, Gary, in fairness to the administration, you can explain something to someone but you can't really understand it for them. So it's really up to them to read through these notices to understand. You know, Carrie, one thing that has not gotten a lot of play here is that the reason that the Obama administration and now the Biden administration has come out against these policies and tried to limit their term of coverage is these are relatively healthy people who buy these policies. They feel they don't need the coverage, or at least they don't need the comprehensive coverage. And back in the uh, ACA days, when everyone was debating this, the Obama administration wanted these people to have an incentive to buy their coverage from the public exchanges because the public exchanges needed these healthier people in order to improve their risk pool. And in the early days of the exchanges, that was probably true. The exchanges really needed that juice there. But now you look at where the exchanges are today from a risk standpoint, the exchanges are doing pretty well. I mean, even with this 36-month period in there from the last administration, they've, they've kind of leveled out their pricing. There doesn't really need to be an influx of these former users of short-term insurance in order to keep the public exchanges afloat. Uh, the public exchanges appear to be doing fine on their own, particularly when you look at the increases in the subsidies, the increases in the number of people who bought the insurance during the pandemic. So, Kerry, I'm not sure that the administration is, is doing anything other than saying this insurance is not good for you, and here's another type of insurance that you ought to buy. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you that the concerns about the exchanges were probably more top of mind during the Obama administration and when they addressed these types of policies. I do think that's really less important now from just based on the things that you just pointed out about the healthiness of the exchange. I think this is really more about making sure that people have comprehensive coverage and that people understand that when they buy these types of policies, that they are not comprehensive and they are, it's in the name short-term limited duration that people understand that these really are temporary and they're really just meant to get people from one more comprehensive policy to another comprehensive policy, for instance, during a transition period where people are changing jobs. My perspective is that's where the administration is coming from on this. It's more about making sure people have comprehensive coverage at all times than it is about worrying what the risk assessment of the exchanges are at this point in time. I think, Carrie, that we're going to see very few people actually argue about this and saying we'd like to keep these short-term minimalist policies or junk insurance or whatever you want to call them, because we've had three years of a, a test case where people really looked at the value of their employer-provided health insurance and realized we need comprehensive health insurance uh, because we might have something like, hey, a black swan event come up like a pandemic, in which case I think we've learned from the last three and a half years, people really value their employer coverage. They really want to access it and they, they like it to be comprehensive, like it to, to cover things that they need when they need it. And I think that's probably going to limit the appeal of the short-term limited duration insurance in the future. So the other big regulation that came out this month uh, is the change in the tax treatment of these employer-provided fixed indemnity policies. Kerry, for the benefit of our listeners, and this is even more of a mouthful than short-term limited duration insurance, what is an employer-provided fixed indemnity policy besides something the employer pays for? Yeah. So, I mean, the idea behind a fixed indemnity policy is it's really meant to pay um, a, a fixed amount 
per day or other period of time, not per service. This is really meant to be complementary to other types of comprehensive medical insurance. It's more about income replacement than it is about actually providing medical care. And so the proposed regulations that came out earlier this month really focus on that. They want to make sure, these proposed regulations want to make sure that individuals understand that it is more about income replacement and not about covering medical services. Also not comprehensive, like we talked about with the short-term limited duration insurance policies. And these proposed regulations go on to say that to the extent that these policies are purchased on a pre-tax basis, that the benefits that they then pay out would be taxable. And not everyone who was selling these policies was under the impression that those benefits had to be taxable. So this would be a change in how those benefits are provided and make clear that to the extent that they're purchased on a pre-tax basis with pre-tax premiums, that the benefits themselves would be taxable. The other thing that these proposed regulations do is go through the requirements for these fixed indemnity policies to qualify as an accepted benefit. And the reason why that's important to qualify as an accepted benefit is because then those types of policies will not be subject to the group market reforms under the Affordable Care Act that apply to group health insurance policies. So the proposed regulations, to sum up, do a couple of things. They um, outline the specific conditions that these policies have to meet to be an accepted benefit, not subject to those ACA group market reforms, and clarify that um, these really are more like income replacement policies, and therefore that benefit has to be taxable to the um, employee. So it's good to be an accepted benefit. You don't have to follow all those messy ERISA rules about coverage and market reforms and all that, but it does make it harder to qualify. I mean, what's the difference now with this qualifying as an accepted benefit only if the benefits are paid on a per period basis? I mean, how how does that work? Yeah, so so I alluded to this a minute ago. So it, it, you're an accepted benefit only if the benefits are paid on a per period basis, regardless of the type of expenses you incur or the services that you receive. So for example, a fixed indemnity policy would be required to pay a fixed amount per day of hospitalization like for example, $100 per day, it could not pay on a per item or a per service basis. So for example, $50 for a blood test or $100 for a visit. And we have seen policies out there that pay on a per item or per service basis. And so the agencies are, are being very direct and clear that if the policy does have that type of benefit, the per item or per service basis type of benefit, that would not meet the um, definition of an accepted benefit and therefore would be subject to the ACA requirements, which they couldn't meet and therefore would be subject to, to penalties for non-compliance under the ACA. With the tax treatment of these payments, that's really where the kicker comes in, because if you're not excluding these payments from gross income, they're kind of saying that it's not a reimbursement of medical expenses. They're saying that payment of benefits without regard to the actual amount that you incur would actually be taxable income it would not be excluded from gross income in any amount under 105B. And that would be a big change with respect to these benefits. So I guess we'll see where the proposal goes. 
Yeah, because I think there were some policies that were only taxing the benefit to the extent they ex- it exceeded the medical care cost or it was not being taxed because the thought was that because it was triggered by a particular medical service or item that it would not be taxable. But the agencies are, are proposing that is not, in fact, the case. So we are recording this at the end of July, and yesterday the long-awaited mental health parity rules finally came out. And we are going to give you a sneak preview. Usually the coming attractions appear at the beginning of the show, not at the end of the show. Uh, But next month, we are going to discuss the mental health parity rules in detail, or at least as much detail as we can glean from them sitting on the beach, reading them through. Uh, But just a couple of items on this, the proposed rules, almost 400 pages in length, They explain how health plans have to look at the restrictions they place on behavioral health care to make sure that when you need that type of treatment, when you need mental health or substance use disorder treatment, that people who need that don't run into more roadblocks than if they sought other types of medical care. The proposed rules, from what we understand, there are new requirements on data collection, new requirements on evaluation, a special rule on network composition, and a requirement for how health plans have to make analyses of their care limits available to federal and state authorities, as well as to participants and beneficiaries. If you're looking for good reading material, boy, imagine the beach next summer when you get those things. Uh, The idea, though, uh, the agency says to end up with more robust provider networks for mental health and substance use disorder treatments and less restrictive prior authorization requirements. Carrie, there's also a report that the government issued on compliance with these rules. Can you tell us what, what that's about? Yeah, but before I get to that, I want to just point out a couple of things about these proposed regulations. So as we've talked about more than one time on the bar, employers have really been struggling with the requirement to provide the comparative analysis on their non-quantitative treatment limits. This is the documentation that the DOL can ask for and wants plans to have prepared about how any non-quantitative treatment limits like a pre-authorization requirement applies to mental health benefit as compared to a medical benefit, making sure it isn't being applied more stringently, either in design or in actual practice. These proposed regulations go through a lot of detail about what exactly those comparative analyses must include. To the extent that plans have been asking for the agencies to give more detailed guidance around how to actually prepare that documentation, it is helpful. But to the extent that it is very detailed and is going to require plans to collect a lot of data, that will be a a bit challenging. The other thing that these proposed regulations do, and, and you mentioned this when you were going through it, is there's a lot of emphasis on network composition, because you might recall that network composition is a non-quantitative treatment limit, and to the extent that your networks for mental health providers are not as robust as they are for medical providers, that could be a violation of mental health parity. Now, what plans and plan sponsors have said is, look, there is a shortage of mental health providers. So, you know, it's not necessarily our fault that our network composition of mental health providers is not as strong as it is for um, medical providers. And what the the agencies say is that they want to see that the plans are making strides to increase that network composition of mental health providers, whether it's increasing reimbursement rates to get more providers in the network, doing outreach 
outreach to mental health providers who aren't in the network to try to get them in the network, those types of things. So just to underscore that point, there's a lot of discussion in these proposed regs about network composition, because that is a real challenge with respect to receiving access to mental health benefits. You mentioned the report that the government issued. They are required to issue this report to Congress every year. The last report that they issued back in 2022 did say that for every plan for whom they rec- the agencies requested this uh, comparative analysis that everyone failed, that frankly is still the case. The comparative analyses that were received upon the first request did not meet the requirements that the agencies thought they should have met to comply with the uh, comparative analysis requirements. The agencies said that overall, the plants hadn't really improved their submissions compared to that prior year report, but they are hopeful that with additional information and the guidance that's coming out, that they will see more compliance on this requirement. So definitely more to come on this. There's a lot of detail and we'll be providing an update on this, as you said, JD, on next month's episode of The Bar. That report, Carrie, made me feel like back in my intro political science class when we sent in our first papers and the professor sent them back saying, you guys got to do better. Then we redid them and sent them back and he came in and said, no, you really got to do better. And it just didn't get off on the right foot there. Yeah. You know, the response to that, to the DOL saying that everybody has failed has been the old adage, well, if everybody fails the test, then it's probably the that it might be the teacher. So maybe the so, yeah, teacher. So if you've got tenure, though, that excuse <laughs> never flies. That just never flies. So, okay, well, last call. And boy, if we didn't need one before that last mental health parity discussion, we certainly need it now. If you had ventured outside at all the past few weeks, you know it's hot out there. It's really hot. So here's a hint to escape the summer sauna. Head indoors to the air-conditioned comfort of your local cinema because the movies are back. There is a wealth of celluloid fare for you to choose from, whether you want to join Indiana Jones on One Last Crusade or gather with the Guardians of the Galaxy. This past weekend saw one of the biggest movie openings of all time with Barbie and Oppenheimer giving moviegoers a, well, distinct choice as to their entertainment options. I even ventured out to my local playhouse to take in a 60th anniversary showing of the 007 classic from Russia with Love. Now all they have to do is just solve the strike by writers and directors and we'll be all set. Here at the bar, we hope that endeavor doesn't turn out to be a mission impossible. Carrie? Uh, so just a, a quick story about the Barbie movie. My 14-year-old son went to go see the Barbie movie with some of his baseball buddies. And I think the idea was that they thought that there would be a lot of 14-year-old girls at the movie. So that, that might have been the incentive for them. But when I picked them up, my, my son said, Mom, I didn't really get it. It was very <laughs> weird. And I said, well, sweetie, I don't think that was, that you were the target demographic for this movie. So that was our experience with the Barbie movie this weekend. But I'm excited to see it. I haven't seen it yet. Well, you will have to let me know. I have not seen either one. I'm trying to find an IMAX movie someplace where I can see Oppenheimer. But I'll be intrigued uh, to, to see Barbie. Actually, my son and his friends took in the Barbenheimer double feature this weekend, although they had to go to separate movie theaters. And, and they enjoyed them both, although I'm not sure enjoyment is the correct word for Oppenheimer. So that's our report for today. Proposed regulations and movie reviews. <laughs> So we'd like to thank our producer, Don Moorhead, for making us sound better than we deserve. And from all of us here at Aon, I'm Carrie Willis. And I'm J.D. Pirro. 
thanking you for your time this time. And until next time, the bar is closed. You've been listening to The Bar on Healthcare, an Aon podcast. Aon is not engaged in the practice of law. The information in this podcast is not intended as and should not be considered legal advice. Please consult your own legal counsel to obtain such advice.